and thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast. This is Lauren, and I manage the Adulting is Easy blog and podcast, which can be found at realadultingiseasy.com and anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are back this week with Wealth Wednesday, getting started in real estate. In case you're wondering where we've been, I was on vacation and we took that week off and then we had some Twitter space issues the week after that. Um, So we are back in full force with getting started in real estate. Lots of actionable tips coming at you from myself, Coach Clint, Stephen Wealthy, Tom the Frugal Gay, and our guest, Mary. We hope you enjoy it. We had technical difficulties last week, so we are back for Wealth Wednesday with the same topic, which is how to close your first real estate deal, how to get your first deal under contract. Super stoked to talk about this tonight. Um, We're going to go for about 90 minutes. If you have to jump off, this will be recorded. Twitter God's willing, it'll be recorded and edited and posted in a few days on the Adulting is Easy. That's my podcast feed. So um, be prepared, ask us some questions. I, I got a couple questions this week that I'll, that I'll talk about as well tonight. Um, so we're just, in general, just really excited. We have uh, our typical typical uh, panel tonight. That's Tom um, at the Frugal Gay 11, Stephen at Stephen Wealthy underscore, Coach Clint, that's at I am Coach Clint. And we have Mary as well, who's at the Penny Drop three with, I think, another three in there. So follow all of us. Get ready to ask us some questions. We're really excited to talk real estate with you guys tonight. I thought we might kick off tonight, guys, with just kind of a, what do we have? Any kind of any kind of big things going on this week? Uh, bonus points if it's real estate related. Can't see. Tom, are you a speaker yet? Maybe you're just, just I, delayed for me. I, I am. Can you hear me? I can. It looks like you're a listener, but I can hear you. So that's perfect. What do you, what did you have going on this week? Anything big? I know you've got stuff going on in, uh, in Ohio and Texas. So this week I completed taxes, which was a huge undertaking. Um, I'm almost done moving out of my old primary residence and I'm at the 50% mark on the new primary residence renovations. Um, I made my husband sit with me last night and add up all the receipts, which he and I love to do the same thing and just keep spending and spending and spending. And we went into this with a $40,000 budget. And last night, the look on his face when we added all the receipts was priceless because he's like, we need to stop and I needed to start painting things myself um, because we have definitely gone over 40000 Now that I am not working a traditional nine to five, we don't have that steady extra flow of income coming in. So that's why I made him sit with me and actually look at all of where the money's going, what we've spent it on, what we've bought so far. And um, he's actually in the other room putting together kitchen cabinets right now. I'm, I'm excited with where I'm at. I've got two deals that I'm looking at in Ohio that I had one of them viewed today and one of them is being viewed tomorrow. And we may write on one of those. Otherwise it's been a really good week. Everyone is current on rents and we're moving in the right. Now that I've completed my taxes and paid my taxes, we're moving in the right direction now. So it's been a good week. You're stressing me out because I haven't done my taxes yet. I hate it so much. I'm like the worst. I have a finance degree. I've done so many accounting classes and I just can't stand it whatsoever. Um, so Mary, what about you? Uh, other than going to Colorado, what else has been going on in the last week or so? I just have to say, I, I really hate taxes too. So um, uh, Tom stressed me out too. <laughs> I'm like, I always turn mine in like April 15th, but, but 
Yeah, no, we have a, a, we're closing on a cash out refinance on our first rental property on Friday. So yay, that's super exciting. Um, And I was trying to coordinate all that while I was in Colorado, along with we have a leak in the same property. And uh, I was also coordinating that. So um, for anyone who, um, you know, is like, I don't want to invest in real estate because it's too much work. Well, yep, sometimes it is. Sometimes you're on vacation and there's a leak suddenly in your property. And I don't know why that couldn't have happened when I was in Florida, but um, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So uh, we got it. We got it figured out. Um, They're going to fix it tomorrow. But my poor tenants have been going on like five days of no hot water um, and they're troopers. So yeah, that's been an interesting combination of, of things while I got stuck in Colorado. It's been like a fascinating week, but yeah, so that's, that's the big thing. We're also, um, you know, we haven't actually uh, found any property here. We are sitting on some cash ready to buy and we are still actively looking and while we're thinking about investing in another market. So we sort of have a lot going on at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, when I was in Colorado, which I went the week before you, so I did it first. Same kind of thing. You know, we've had 200 around thereabouts short-term rental guests and we had our first party and of course I was in Colorado for it so it's a whole thing but um you know something about real estate that's really interesting and I've been batting this idea around of like trying to write a blog that captures this is how it makes you feel like you can pretty much handle anything that comes your way it's kind of incredible where stuff that would have rattled me to the core two years ago I I like kind of laugh at now um, I don't know. Maybe it's not healthy, but it, it is what it is. And it's it's part of my life. Um, Steven, what about you? What's your update for the week? So I'm kind of the opposite of Barry with, with the real estate. Uh, I have, well, and I'm, I'm very much the opposite of Tom. I have one door that I rent. I have no problems with it whatsoever. So I'm, I'm the opposite of Tom in that I only have one versus his 18. And I'm the opposite of Mary in that I have, like, no problems with this thing. Well, I was going to say ever, but I very rarely. And when I do have a problem with it, I will tell them, call in the trade, call in the solution solver, the problem solver, and put it on your credit card, and then I'll reimburse you. Just send me the invoice. Yeah, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this thing. Uh, I'm very much a hands-off type of landlord. Uh, I keep them happy. I want them as happy as possible and uh, just keep on paying me the rent each month. And it, it goes really smoothly. In terms of my update of what I've been doing this week, Ethereum has had a terrific week. It's done really well. Growth stocks have done tremendous as well. Mary, I want to hear about your Baba experience <laughs> because I think that one caught you off guard on that one when you landed in Colorado. And uh, I sold some call options against the QQQ and uh, those are looking to expire on Friday out of the money. So I'm excited for that one. And uh, getting ready for Market Madness next week there. So It's been a terrific week so far and uh, looking forward to learning more tonight on how to close your first real estate deal. Uh, Mainly learning from you masters of real estate here tonight. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, rub it in. Now you have nothing going on with your door. (laughs) That's that's fine. That's fine. 
I take it back. I'm going to cry instead of laugh now. No, it's fine. Um, what about you, Coach Clint? I know you were um, driving a little bit ago. I don't know if you're home or if your connection is stable yeah, enough to give I've us an been, update. Uh, I've been home for about 10 minutes. You guys were with me for my full commute, rough life. So it's um, it's good where, where we're living, pretty close to the office. The, it's been a great week. And talking about taxes, even as a CFO, I have only done my own personal taxes once in my life, I think. And uh, my wife's been doing it ever since, so I try to avoid that as well. You're not the only one. Even as an accountant. The, it was a big week. We talked to our mortgage broker last week, and looks like we will have an opportunity to put a good mortgage onto two properties that we're closing on in June. One of the key criteria we were trying to do with them, and it, it was a little difficult for them to find a a lender who would do it was to have the opportunity to put a home equity line of credit onto the properties right after we close on them. For perspective, we put these under contract in June of 2019. So when we close on them on in the, at the start of June, we'll have had them under contract for three years and it's been incredible growth. So I imagine we have somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million dollars in lift, maybe a bit more. And if we can access that, I should be able to pull out 300 grand, hopefully, in debt. And I have uh, either a plan to head to Alberta, visit Steve and people in that area and buy some real estate there. Or uh, there may be an opportunity to do an investment at work that would have a pretty pretty ridiculous IRR so that it, it may make more sense to leave it in that and not buy real estate. So lots on the go, very excited to see how it plays out and whether we get as much money as I'm hoping we do. It'll all depend on the appraisals, obviously. And looking forward to learn from Mary and the rest of the crew tonight. Last week, we had a lot, a lot of actionable advice, and I'm hoping we, we get that same thing tonight. Back to you, Lon. Yeah, thanks, Clint. Thanks for sharing. My only kind of big update of the week is we got our eighth short-term rental listing up. So after the first time we were under contract on this six-unit apartment building was last May, and here we are in March, and we 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 now have three of the units that are short-term rentals, and three of them are long-term rentals. We didn't actually close until December, so it's not as insane as it sounds. Um, but huge relief. To have that behind me just hanging over my head for for many months now so um pretty exciting so um yeah so last week and this week we're talking about how to close your first real estate deal um tom i think we had you go first last week and i think maybe we'll just stick with that same same thing tonight you know what what are some things that people should do to get their first real estate deal and and definitely there's going to be some things that they should do kind of even before that right Absolutely. So I actually posted a thread about this yesterday and I'll, I'll pin it up in the um, nest here shortly. But the first thing that I always tell people to do is look at your bad credit, look at your credit card debt. Is the lender going to lend you money to get this first deal under contract? And if it's a no, then we need to work on th- that first. And a lot of people are super impatient and I understand that. Um, so things that you can be doing is... Number one, and I've had two people that have worked with me on this where they're not necessarily ready to buy, but they want to be in it, and but they're still working on debts and they're still working on 
other loans and they have things in collections. Everyone could afford a $15 box of business cards. So I would get yourself a box of business cards and go out and just start talking with people that are already doing it. Go out and look at real estate, go out and, you know, surround yourself with people that are doing it and then offer to be a protege. You know, that is something that's not going to cost you anything but time. And if you want to be doing it, I know that when I was approached and I've been approached twice by two others and they're like, Hey, can I come over and help you paint? Can I come over and help you put together cabinets? Can I come over while you're showing this apartment? I'm always like, yes, because I'd like someone there to help me. I'd like someone there to hold the level while I'm mounting this. I'd like someone there to refill or help me take out trash. So if you want to be doing it, see who's around you that's doing it and let them know that you're willing to help them just to kind of get your feet wet. So that's like one of the biggest actionable items that you can do if you're still working on paying off that, that debt. Other things that you can do that will kind of get you going on your way besides that. Um, I'm just going to pull up the list so I don't miss them. And that's actually why I posted, posted this. Um, and I'm sharing it right now up in the, uh, in the nest by yourself, the inexpensive business cards set a timeline for me. I, I look all year long and then I really hone in in October, November, December. And that's when I'm aggressively throwing out bids because other investors are not looking or as aggressive in October, November, December, people don't want to move during the holidays. People want to get things off the books before the holidays. So I know that I can go in with a competitive offer in October. I got two deals. I got one in October and I got one under contract and it didn't close until January. Um, but that's usually, if you look at when I've purchased my 18 doors, I kind of go crazy October, November, December, just because I'm not competing against other people. Those are two things to kind of get your feet wet and get you started. Lauren, did you have any questions? I love that, Tom. And I, I think you're right. There's definitely some patience on the front end. Well, there's a lot of patience on the front end, but buying your first real estate deal starts long before that. And it's certainly your credit, your bad debt, your, you know, your, your debt to income ratio, all of those, all of those things certainly matter. Um, so I'm glad that you're pointing that out. And networking is huge. Um, offering to help people. Absolutely incredible. Why would someone not want to spend an afternoon with you, Tom, who has 18 doors and, and pick your brain, but also help you with something that that's absolutely incredible. And um, I've had people offer to help me with things too. And I haven't thought of a great way to do it with my short-term rentals. I'm like, yeah, I guess we could maybe like do some laundry together. I'm not sure, but um, I do get those offers too. And I, I should be better about um, taking people up on those. So, so that's really good too. Um, Clint, do you have any questions for Tom? I know you had some, I think maybe last week. Yeah, I think the one thing I'd love to throw out at you, Tom, is you, you talked about getting pairing up with someone, right? What about doing research, right? Because we don't need to have the cash yet in order to do research. So if someone other than other than going out with a real estate expert like you for a ride along to check things out, how can someone do affordable research from their home? to figure out where they want to buy real estate and what are some of the things you would tell them to look for, for that first home? 
So I always, when people are like, I want to do real estate, my first question is, how long are you good paying the mortgage on this property if you're not collecting rent on it? Because there are times and you can't, you know, it doesn't always mean that you're going to get a multifamily property under under contract. I've had people start with, you know, two bedroom condos. I've had people start with um, a, a one bed condo. So that's always kind of my first question is how long are you comfortable paying it? Um, I like to forward things that I'm interested in and ask them to run the numbers for me and tell me tell me what makes sense to them and what doesn't. And then I'll kind of go back and explain to them, you know, this deal would make more sense to me because I know that I can cover the rent from just one side of the duplex versus both. And I'll, I'll break it down for them and I'll explain to them, you know, this is why this makes sense. This is why this doesn't make sense. I'll also kind of go break down zip codes for them. And, and the, these are in markets that I'm familiar with and that I'm already renting in. Um, I have people send me DMs all the time saying, hey, I've got this great off market, blah, 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 in this in this area. Do you want to do you want information on it? And I'm comfortable in my two markets because I have my teams formed and other people may be interested in that. But I really don't want to venture outside my other markets because when I have, I have not been as successful. So I just try and. um explain that to them, you know, explain when I went to Cleveland, Ohio, I lost $22,000 on that deal and I lost money on it every year that I owned it. So it wasn't, I just wasn't able to get a good tenant. I wasn't able to form a team and I don't, you know, this is why this didn't work for me. So um, as far as numbers and as far as like back office stuff, I'll throw stuff that's on my watch list at people when they're like, Hey, I want to get into this. And I'll say, tell me what you're seeing on the numbers. Would this make sense to you as a, a rental? And people, people can, you know, kind of break it down and, and see it firsthand. Like, Oh yeah, this really wouldn't make sense. I'm, I'm overpaying on this property by 30,000 and carrying that mortgage note. If I have to evict someone or, or do something, it, it's just not a, the, the numbers don't make sense. I see Mary has her hand up uh, maybe before she jumps in with a, a question or Mary, you can tack on to this. What metrics, Tom, when you're saying, you know, you get them to throw you back the numbers and see what makes sense for them. Other than covering the rent, the uh, let's call it reserves. What are some of the key metrics for you when you buy real estate? Like what are the numbers you look at? I want to know the tax. I want to know the insurance. I want to know the, you know, is there an HOA on this property? What is it going to cost me every month if I have that sitting vacant for three months or six months? And then I look at it. Um, what is the property, you know, what is the property historically returned? What are the rents? Is this property, you know, I have a, D plus property that makes the same as an A property for me um, because I have a good tenant and I had so many applications on it. So I would, you know, going back, I would have never bought this property, but I was in a like kind exchange situation where I had sold something and I needed to buy something else. So this property kind of popped onto my radar. I bought it and I necessarily looking at it, I would not buy a D plus property. I don't want the problems that come with it, but it was a really clean, really quick turnaround. I think I bought between the time I viewed it and the time I bought it, it was like 11 days. And 
the applications that came in on it and the growth in that area, seeing that they're they're building a Chrysler plant down the road, less than a mile down the road, it makes sense. And if I didn't have that situation, I would have never even looked at this property. But that's kind of how that worked out. And that cash flows the same as a, a $400,000 A-class neighborhood property for me. So I think um, what my rents are, what my carrying costs are, what my mortgage, what my interest, what my um, tax and insurance are going to be are all the numbers that I'm looking at when I'm deciding if, if, if this is the property or not that I want to invest in. And, and then are you making the call based on the cash flow? So, so you're looking at it and you're saying, hey, here's, here, here's what I'm going to be bringing in. Here's what it's going to cost me to hold. And uh, I'm really focused on a certain cash flow number per month. Not like a, like you're not looking at IRR or return on equity. You're looking at what's my, what's my cash in my dream each month. Uh, not necessarily. Like there is a property that I bought in January in Dallas that I make less than a hundred. I, I make about a hundred dollars a month on it, but I know that the appreciation and the value and the neighborhood are there. So I see the appreciation side of it in Dallas. So I know that I'm not cash flowing very much on it, but I see what it's going to do for me in the long run and it's worth holding and it's worth keeping in my portfolio. And it has a 20 plus year tenant and they were willing to go up on rent. So I see, you know, I look on both sides and I used to be able to cash flow in, in Dallas, Texas and in Toledo, Ohio. But um, lately it's been more cash flow in Toledo, Ohio and more um, appreciation in Dallas, Texas, especially on, on new acquisitions. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So on average, depending on the location, it's either cash flow or appreciation you're going for. Um, are there any set targets that you're looking to hit, Tom, when you like, are you quantifying that expected future appreciation in the Dallas area? Or are you just saying, Hey, I think in Dallas, I'm going to uh, appreciate and long-term I'll be happy with the number. Or, or is it a very specific quantitative measure that you're looking at? And then Mary, uh, after Tom replies to that, why don't you jump in? Sorry, I, I definitely hijacked that longer than anticipated. I, I just love numbers. So you'll know what's coming when, uh, when I start chatting. I, I don't have a specific number. I do case-by-case -case basis. And um, this Dallas deal uh, was from me passing out a card to a friend, and the friend contacted me, and the landlord was ready to cash out. And this was not an active deal that I was looking for. Um, the, the landlord came at me with a number. When I did everything, I said, well, I can't buy a property to lose money every month. This is the number that I can purchase it at. And the landlord's like, all right, I want to make this work. I want to keep the tenant in place. Let's do this. So I don't have a specific number that I, I look at. But I do, you know, when I did that deal, um, I, I ran the numbers and I said, you know, if I buy it for what you want me to buy it for, I'm going to lose money every month and this doesn't make any sense. And when I went back to her with my number, she's like, okay, I can make this work. And I explained it to her and broke it down for her and she'd owned it for 30 years. So she, she understood and, you know, she, she knew that she really wasn't making any money on it. Uh, she was just holding it and it didn't really make sense, but yeah, so I'll turn it over to Mary. I know. I actually, I was just interested, um, Tom, in, you know, when you're kind of talking with people, it's like 
when you first start out, um, we, we, we talk to people and kind of say, like, be very narrow and specific in what you're looking for. But then when, when we, as you gain experience, you tend to, to broaden your options and your decisions and you, you start to like make different decisions. I don't know if you found that. And then as well with that D property, if you have issues with like property management or, or things like that, that, that um, might take a toll on your um, cash flow, or if because you have a good tenant, you've you've kind of been able to manage it. So that D property, um, because I have a good tenant, and because I had twenty three applications or thirty two, I can't remember what it was coming on the first day. I was able to choose a good tenant. I've had a few contractors kind of bite back that, hey, I don't want to go do that. But since we have a formed relationship and I have a good team in place, you know, when I need a plumber to go out or I need a HVAC to go out that went out this winter, they were able to go out there and make an exception for me because there are certain zip codes that they just don't feel com- comfortable doing business in. And I understand that. <clears throat> um so the good tenant has definitely helped. Every time that I've been in the property since they've been there, it's cleaner than how I turned it over to them. Uh, they have a lot of pride in ownership. They they have a garden. They they really, you know, someone was pretending to be me and advertise it and try and rent it and scam people out of money. And the tenant was so worked up over this because she's like, I don't ever want to leave. This is where this is my home, you know, getting the right tenant and, and spending the extra, you know, I think when that one went up, I spent two or three weeks going through and doing two open house showings a week to get that good tenant in place. It was worth it for me. I'd rather have a good tenant than collect money immediately. And as far as the um, limiting expectations, my expectations have definitely changed over the years. I, I started and my wealth really grew when I looked at what the other investors were ignoring, which were condos in, in Dallas and I've traded up a lot of those condos into single and multifamily. And that's why I own a commercial property now. And if I would have just looked at what everyone else was doing, which was multifamily, you know, duplexes or single family homes, I wouldn't be where I am. But I was able to turn a lot of those condos that I bought for fifteen to $30,000 into, you know, $100,000 down payments on, on a commercial property or or that. So I, I just kind of, yeah, my scope of what I'm looking for has drastically changed over 18 years. And I look at, at different properties and different, different things all the time. And I, I always said no commercial. And, and then I went and picked up a commercial building. Absolutely. You, you pivot and you change as you, as you grow in this business. Yeah, Tom, and it's not only you or your knowledge that has changed over the last 18 years. I mean, the market has gone up and down and changed a lot in that time as well. Absolutely. Yeah, go over to Mary and talk about uh, how Mary acquires and locks up new deals. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, so Tom got started 18 years ago. Mary, you got started like two years ago. And and that said, the market's still different now than it was two years ago. Probably some of what you've what you started with, you're probably still doing. So just talk us through, um, you know, how to get your first deal. How did you get your first deal under contract and what kind of what parts of that work now and what you're doing now to get deals under contract? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's changed somewhat, but it it is probably um, more similar than yeah, eighteen years ago. But yeah, it, it was just two years ago, and kind of from the moment I had the epiphany of like, oh, we need to buy real estate. 
until I got my first deal, there was about four months, three of which I was just kind of educating myself in a couple of ways. Um, one in which is, you know, you have to understand how to actually run the numbers and, and what it what that kind of that side means. Um, and that was a lot of reading books and listening to podcasts um, and talking with other investors. Um, and then the other side is you you have to get comfortable with houses and real estate and whatever it is, or, you know, mobile homes or whatever it is, whichever area you want to buy in or that um, appeals to you, you, you got to get comfortable. So I literally didn't know what to do. So I just went to open houses because it felt safe and I didn't have to commit to anything. And I would just look, go inside a house and look around. And then... <laughs> Um, as I, I did that a few times, and then I would go around with a real a couple different realtors, you know, I I started looking in my own market and quickly realized that the, the deals wouldn't make sense. We'd run out of money. They didn't really cash flow because I lived in quite an expensive area. Um, and so just through my own research, I was able to target an area that had, um, you know, much cheaper property and fairly decent rent compared to what the cost of, of buying the property was. And for me, that was an hour away. But, you know, even if you are going to look further, um, further within your own state or out of state, um, I do feel like the research can be very similar. So um, it really starts by first knowing, understanding, running the numbers, and being comfortable with a house, you know, so go look in your own market, even if you're not going to buy in your own market. Um, you know, I know to look for the age of the roof, the AC, um, you know, understand what, what's the plumbing, what's specific to the area, look at the windows, look at the, so that you can kind of calculate, well, what amount of my money will I have to put into this to get it rent ready? Um, how much rent am I then going to get for this property in this specific area? Um, and then be able to run those numbers. So kind of researching is going to be very active and, and you can start by just going in your own area, even if you don't buy in your own area. And then from there, uh, I both, I, you know, went on Facebook and just started joining groups, like real estate groups in the Tampa Bay area where I lived, started just chatting with people. Um, I went to a few RIA meetings I also kind of told people that uh, certain friends that I felt I could talk about it with. Um, and that led to me taking an investor out to lunch and just asking her a ton of questions. And she uh, kind of told me about an area. And then at the same time, I was talking with people on Facebook um, and they were talking about this area. So uh, we went and, and drove around and decided, okay, we're going to buy here. So that was about a three month process for me. And then the second we found that area, I, I, we got a house under contract within a month. So it, it's very much like once you are confident in your numbers, you know the area and you know what you're going to buy, you know, you have to ju then just go for it. And, and there, people talk about analysis paralysis, but for me, it's like you, you know, you know, it works. So just trust it and just go like do it. Right. So that was. That was kind of what um, what we did. And th there's always a scary element, right? Um, we were nervous about it, but it was a great house and, and the, the numbers worked and, and we knew it would work for us. So 
Yeah, I love that, Mary. And we're again, we're hearing that there's a little bit of legwork, right, that needs to be done before we find a place under to put it under contract, right? You don't just go out tomorrow and start making offers, but it, you know, basically a couple months, three months, four months is an, is enough time to get that knowledge, which is pretty awesome. Go ahead, Clint. Thank you. The the first thing, so you talked about in essence finding the diamond in the rough. And in real estate, there's a couple things that tie to that, right? Like all the money you make is on the buy or buy in the path of progress. And you, you've talked about that before. When Can you explain to people what you mean by buying in the path of progress? And then in your mind, Mary, how do we find that path of progress? How do we find that location that will be an A location in the future, but it might be a B or a C now, or it might be a C or a D and it's going to become a B. So what are, what are your tips and tricks and what did you do to find that specific community and how can you repeat that on your future buys and how can people in the audience who may not have bought yet, how can they make sure that their first buy is in the path of progress? That's such a great question because I feel like, you know, even with seven properties, I'm now facing that same thing again because I found two different areas in the path of progress and now both areas have appreciated so significantly just in the last two years. So it's like, okay, here we go again, right? So I'm right back at it. So it's it's almost like when you do this as an investor, it's not like you're like, okay, it's done. I've I've figured it out and now all is over, right? It's like you have to, you do have to keep doing it. So with the the first time around, actually both areas I buy in, I kind of found it in a similar way. So once you kind of decide, okay, it's too expensive, you know, immediately in the area I know, um, you kind of, for me, I started looking just like within one to two hours um, in every direction out from where I was living, trying to understand what was going on. So is there population growth in a certain area? Where are they building new construction? Are there any new jobs coming in? Tom mentioned in Toledo that they were putting a Chrysler plant. They need workers to work there, right? So there's going to be housing and there's going to be people with jobs looking to rent in that area. Um, and so that's basically what we were doing. Um, as I was talking with investors, there was this whole discussion of our uh, county is very expensive and there's this county just to the north that everyone ignores, nobody pays attention to, You, no one would consider living there. But what was happening with us local people not realizing is people are moving there to rent because they can't afford the rent in our county and then just doing the commute and the commute's only, you know, 30 minutes. So um, there started to be this whole community of young renters renting these 1960s houses that no one like in the middle of nowhere, but it wasn't the middle of nowhere anymore. Right. So you have to kind of pay attention to those things. Where is that progress going? So there were, when you when I drove up there and I hadn't been there in years, I was like, oh, okay, there's some like new shops. I, I, I make a joke about like Whole Foods. If there's a new Whole Foods being built or like a new Starbucks, they've already paid millions of dollars for people to do that research that there are people moving to that area. So you just should buy in that area, right? They've already done that research for you. So you're trying to see like where they're building, w which direction, 
people are moving to and why? Is it for jobs? Is it because it's not that far of a commute? So um, people from from Tampa and from my county um, can make it to this area within a half hour, 40 minutes. And so it's not a big deal for them to make that drive um, and go rent where it's much where it's a cheaper uh, place to live. And so um, that's how I found that. After COVID hit, instead of the prices dropping, which is what we thought would happen, they skyrocketed, and specifically in that area. So we decided to pivot into, uh, we were buying single family homes in that area. We pivoted into um, a small multifamily. And again, it was like the same thing. It was actually in my county, which I had written off as too expensive. I can't buy anything here. But I found this one area where um, there were uh, there was a mixture between houses, uh, single family homes and small multifamily properties. It was, t- I think, traditionally more of like a C class neighborhood, but it was just north of St. Petersburg. And if anyone's familiar at all with this area, St. Pete has just exploded as a as a t- town. They've revitalized it. It's great if anyone wants to go. It's a really great city. But um, that has put the prices of everything up really high. Um, and that includes the rent. And so there's a ton of just young adults, like in their 20s, who don't mind, again, to drive, um, you know, just outside St. Pete. And so this little niche kind of, it's like literally seven or eight streets, has these multifamily properties that is just perfect distance from anyone working um, just around the St. Pete area. And it's also right near uh, the bridge into Tampa. So anyone in Tampa could also drive and and live right there. And so I found, you know, um, uh, several multifamily properties that were great deals. And it was, you know, landlords who didn't want them anymore. Um, And, and that was kind of how I was able to, to find that. And it's, and again, I wrote it off myself that I would never find anything in Pinellas County. And it was just really understanding the location, where people are willing to drive for their job and kind of what's going on with these neighborhoods. And, and this neighborhood is now becoming more like a, B, a C plus B minus neighborhood as these young professionals are moving a little bit further outside St. Pete to pay slightly cheaper rents. Yeah, and something that I, so, oh, sorry, something that I wanted to add to Mary to what you were saying was, just because when you're looking in the path of progress, right? Naturally, you might be getting into an area when it's starting to see a little bit of a bump already, and I don't want people to get wrapped around the ah, oh, but I two years ago I could have bought it for X, and now I have to pay Y, right? you have to understand that the path of progress is progress, right? And you have to trust that you're right, that what you're seeing makes sense it's happening right before your eyes. This is part of your reality and it's going to keep going up from there. Something that I think a lot of people get wrapped around is they say, Oh, this area, oh, I missed it. Right. And that's just, that's just not the case. I mean, Mary, things, you know, things that you were doing even two years ago, you're, you're basically having to do other things now. Sorry, Clint, go ahead. No worries. And, it might just be me, Lauren, but they're towards the 20% mark there. Uh, your sound started to go robot mode for me. I don't know if anyone else was, uh, oh, Steve, yeah, okay, other people were having the same thing. So I don't know if you're on Bluetooth and it might have just been scrambling on you. 
The, so what I'm hearing, Mary, is two different types of things that we want to be looking for. And the first one, maybe we can label it suburban stretch. So things are too expensive in the core. How far out are people willing to go where it's still, I guess we'd put in brackets, call it commutable. And so that's, that's what you did there. And there, there are signs that you brought up to look for that indicate that that suburban stretch is now uh, somewhere where you might want to buy. So, so you labeled Whole Foods, you're looking for the new Starbucks, maybe some, some restaurant chains like a, a Joey's or, or whatever you guys, a Chili's, whatever it is you guys have in, in your area down in Florida. Um, and the second one is a bit more your classical gentrification in the city. Now, you're, you're probably going to see some slight different things when you're looking for that gentrification. Are, are there any specific things you can throw out to people on the gentrification side that are going to indicate, hey, this formerly C-class area is about to be a C-plus or a B, or this B area is becoming an A? What would you be looking for that were indicators of gentrification? Honestly, one of the biggest things is our flippers in their flipping places, right? Um, because that's kind of what caught my attention in this neighborhood. I, I was just kind of driving around and I noticed, you know, you'd have a street with maybe 10 um, duplexes and triplexes and three of them had just been painted, had everything brand new and they were on the market for quite a high price. Um, and so when that's starting to happen, then you know that the flippers are obviously getting the higher price they're asking for. And so, and that means more and more people are, um, it means the old landlords that are kind of sick of the place they bought, you know, the one, the one I bought it from, she bought the duplex of 40,000, like 20 years ago. Right. So, um, they just are like, okay, let me unload this thing that I've put no money into. And I don't want to run these tenants anymore because I just saw a property up the road sell for, you know, five times that. Right. Um, and so I, I, that's one of the biggest things I think um, that you're looking for, or are, are people putting a lot of money into the, the, the place to fix it up? It was traditionally a, a, a neighborhood that wasn't really taken care of um, what's going on with the real estate in that neighborhood. Um, and if people are starting to, I, I say flippers, but it could be someone um, cause there's houses in this neighborhood as well. So, you know, it could be someone that, that bought the house, they're living in it, they're fixing up, they're taking care of it. Um, and you start to see that, but we just have a lot of flippers here and, and you see it going on a lot. Um, and I'm going to get in that neighborhood and try to also get a property that needs a lot of work. Um, but instead of, you know, flipping it and, and, uh, selling it off, I'm, I'm going to, um, kind of cash out refinance and then, and rent it out. So that's one kind of thing that has worked for me to, to pay attention to. Perfect. Thank you. And we, so that was the first area that you talked about the, the, and unless anyone has any questions for Mary and then just for the room in general, would really appreciate it if everyone can share the space, get more people to come on in. We are going to have people come up and uh, ask questions and be very interactive 
after we've really picked Mary's brain and got, got some of her thoughts out for all of you. And then we have a panel of people who have experience and knowledge in real estate. So uh, we'll be available to answer questions any of you may have. Uh, German, I see that you've got your hand up. Is that a question for Mary on what she was just talking about? If not, we'll just ask you to kind of save that for later if it is. Uh, feel free to put your hand back up or ask your question. It's a question for later. Uh, I'll wait. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thanks very much. The Mary, the second area that you talked about was doing your homework, doing your research, right? And one of the things I loved about this suburban stretch and this gentrification was boots on the ground. You got in the car, you drove to the area, you scouted it out, you looked at the stores, uh, walked around, sort of were able to get a feel for the neighborhood. And I, I think that's very valuable when we're scouting out real estate. Um, and one of the things I'd recommend, and Tom, you, you'd probably back this up after uh, some later experiences on one of your place places, is to do that walk around at all hours of the day. So check it out in the morning, check it out during the day, and then late at night, go check if the crack addicts are uh, firing bullets through the doors, because uh, our friend Tom has had some experience with that. So the, the other thing you did was you joined a number of online communities to do your research. Are there any specific online communities that you found uh, immediately more valuable than others that you suggest any of us who are interested in real estate look for or, or check out or join, uh, whether they're free or paid? Anything there, Mary? I mean, mainly... Um you know, with, with Facebook, you can go on and just put in real estate and then whatever city and a number of groups will pop up and then you just kind of have to scout them out. So join them and then talk to people and, and see if they're worthwhile. There are some better than others. RIA groups, you know, it's like a hundred bucks a year. Um, I, it can be hit or miss as well with RIA groups. So you, I would say join it and then kind of check out everything they have to offer and then decide, um, you know, if it's worth it. Um, and then bigger pockets, if, if anyone, um, Tom's mentioned this before, bigger pockets is a great resource. Um, and that, but again, it's like with anything else, you have to just um, use it, try it out see what works for you. Um, I know like sometimes with, with bigger pockets, people are, it depends on the area, you know, it, it's an interesting kind of mix as well because it's this huge forum, but they are a great resource to use as well. So that's what I would specifically do. And I'll, I'll add as well, the other thing I did, and again, it was more because I was like, I'm not sure what else to do. So I'm just going to do this was I literally called so many people from realtors to um, property management companies, to even um, some brokers, uh, mortgage brokers, and some attorneys, because often attorneys get properties just, or they're told about them because they're like helping people through a divorce and they're like, oh, there's this house, you know, or this like probate, you know. So um, I've kind of been put onto a couple of um, possible uh, properties because of that. But I, I found the the area I was talking about with the the multifamily. I literally called every agent who had listed a property within a couple of months. 
especially if they had um, listed multiple properties within those like literally seven streets. And I just was like, hi, I'm interested in buying the area. Do you have any more? Because most of the time, um, I mean, not all of us may get to 18 doors like Tom or uh, 18 properties, but um, you know, most of the time people have more than one. And if they're selling one, they might sell more. Um, and so I will call the listing agent and just say, hey, I'm buying in the area. Can you keep me in mind if something else comes on? Um, several times I've run into the instance where they're a listing agent, but their, um, their broker owns a property management company as well. And so they're managing the, uh, the entire portfolio and they're just selling them off piece by piece. And so actually I bought two of the duplexes in that way. It was actually the listing agent, um, the company that she was the agent for also had the property management company that was managing those properties. And they're like, oh, well, they do have this other one. They haven't even put on the market. Do you want that one? Um, and so I was like, please, yes. Um, so, you know, doing that kind of calling never hurts, right? We also spoke to five or six property management companies asking them kind of very similar questions. And I don't even use a property management company, right? We, I, I run the the properties, but it was just to get an idea of like, tell me a little bit more about the area. What are the tenants? What are the rents? You can ask them too. So you kind of keep in mind who are the good property management companies, you know, down the line, I would like to not manage them eventually. Um, but, you know, so ask kind of questions like turnover and what's happening in this area and what are you seeing? Um, so that is just a wealth of knowledge that people are, um, you know, very willing to to give you. So that's just kind of a, an additional kind of research piece that could lead to uh, deals or just an area or any information that you may not know. That was the first time I've, we, we've had someone talk about reaching out to the lawyers and probate lawyers or, or bankruptcy lawyers. Uh, what put you on to that one? And, and have you got a deal out of that, Mary? So um, what I, an open house I went to, um, I was just talking to the agent that was in there because, you know, often they're just an agent and they're sitting around all day. So they're, like really willing to talk to you. Um, and he told me to do that because he was like, I just got, he was also an investor and he had just gotten a really good deal that way. Um, and it was at a house that was probate. So I, I almost got a deal that way and I haven't actually got a deal yet that way, but I lost, you know, this is a good uh, open wound, but you know, we lost a, a bid on a property, but that was probate. And it was, we found it that way, but they had three bids and ours just wasn't the one picked. And that's what happens. You get a lot more deals not chosen than, than get, you know, a lot more offers not chosen. But yeah, that's, I've kind of tried two different properties that way when they were both really great deals and it hasn't happened quite yet, but I'm still on the hunt. But um, I think it's, it's really good depending on your state laws and things like that. But we, if you can kind of find a house in probate or kind of again, divorce um, or I know as well, like estate sales is a really excellent way to find deals depending again on your state and the, the laws with that. But 
I'm kind of just starting to look at a couple of uh, deals that way where you um, kind of connect with people who are, are having an estate sale and they're kind of just trying to sell off the property. Love it. So some of us or some of the people in the audience are going to get stuck on analysis paralysis, which you brought up as, your, as another point. How do you get comfortable with your numbers enough that when you find the property, you know? And what is it you're looking for in your numbers, Mary? Do you run an IRR? Do you look at ROE? Is it a specific cash flow or a cash on cash return? What, what is the metric that makes Mary say, that property is the one, let's go, let's get the deposit check ready, we're closing on it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing to start with is you just need to run the numbers on a lot of deals, like 50 deals. Just I'll throw that number out there. You, you have to, to do it. I kind of sat down and I made myself do it, do three or four every night for like three weeks. Um, I mean, I was a teacher in a past life. So homework is like, you know, normal for me, but I would just say, okay, I got to do three or four tonight, every night. And then after that, you, you immediately just can almost do it in your head. You don't have to run the numbers anymore because you know what to look for. You know, you know to, to go on the property appraiser website, check the taxes, te- call insurance companies, what's the insurance going to be like on this place. So you know what those numbers are. You know what your debt service payment's going to be. And then you, you need to know the area. Do you have other expenses? So up in the north, I don't know, snow removal and other things I don't know anything about. But in Florida, you know, we have certain things you might pay for, for example, on a duplex, we pay for garbage. And so you need to know, like, what are all those expenses? You need to know what the rents are going to be in the area. I kind of get my rents in multiple ways. Um, I don't just go to like rentometer and say, okay, then that's the rent. I, I kind of have three or four sources just to make sure I, I know exactly what something is going to rent for, or more or less. And I'm very conservative with my numbers as well. So I pick like the bottom lowest possible rent I think I can get for something and then run the numbers with that. And then, you know, anything above that is just great, right? If you if you are able to get higher rent than, than the numbers that you ran. And then for me, I, because I know I can get 300 a door or more, I don't tend to like to buy something less than that in cash flow. And that it has kind of adjusted now with the prices going up. I think it will adjust. Tom mentioned, and he made a great point. It's like, you need to decide, are you making a cash flow play? Or are you making an appreciation play? So if I know something, if I'm getting a great deal on a house and it's in a really good neighborhood and I'm only making a hundred in cash flow, uh, on it, I would buy that knowing that it's in a great neighborhood and the it's going to go up in value, right? But if my goal is cash flow, then I'm going to be sticking to the the areas and the, the amount I want to pay to make sure that I have the cash flows that I want. So sometimes that answer really does depend on the goals that you have. Some people have cash and they want to put their money in an asset that they trust and so that's when cash flow may not matter as much to you. If you're trying to live off the of cash flow or you're trying to um, build up uh, wealth using cash flow, then you really have to make sure that you are buying where those numbers work as well. So I personally, I just know I can 
I know what I can get paying a certain amount and I know the rent in the area. So I tend to um, not go with anything under 300 a door at the moment um, where I'm buying and what I'm buying. But um, it does kind of change if um, depending on my goals and and kind of the area I'm buying in. And just to add, I do look at cash on cash return as well, but I mostly focus on cash flow and cash on cash return. I don't look at IRR as much. That might just be because of the prices that I'm paying and the cash flow I'm able to get compared to, I think, a market like yours where IRR becomes a lot more important, unless I'm wrong on that, which it could be, but <laughs> at least that's, that's how I kind of take it. We don't cash flow, so if I uh, if I looked at cash flow, I would never buy an asset. So Dizzy, uh, you're absolutely right. The uh, I mean, cash on cash return with principal paydown uh, is okay, uh, but it's IRR because it's really looking at it, and it's a bit more like Tom was saying. We're we're a bit more like the area where we're looking at the long term appreciation and saying rents go up on average five percent a year. So on average, my value, I mean, if the cap rate remains the same, then on average, your value is going to go up close to 5% a year. And so when you, when you look at that, you say, okay, well, in 10 years when I sell this, it's going to be worth significantly more, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 70%. Although there, I was thinking about this the other day, one of, one of the biggest developers in our city, he's actually, they actually developed in... Vancouver, Chicago, Los Angeles, Toronto, and, and some other uh, locations. So they're probably the biggest Vancouver developer globally. And their general theory on Vancouver is just that real estate will double every 10 years. And so it's, you know, they're pretty matter of fact about that. When they buy dirt, they just assume 10 years from now it'll be worth twice as much. And so that's, you know, I, I don't put that into my numbers, Mary. I, I assume about 2 to 3%. Uh, rent inflation a year. But in the back of my mind, I do expect real estate to roughly double here every 10 years. Um, so it makes it into no spreadsheet that I have. Uh, Lauren, you wanted to open it up to people with questions and, and bring people up to talk real estate and see what questions anyone may have. If you have questions, feel free to throw your hand up and come on up and our host will bring you up to join us. Uh, German, you did have a question earlier, so we'll let you fire away and then I'll uh, pass it to you after long. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for doing these Wealth Wednesdays. This is actually uh, my second one. And I just want to say thank you to Tom. The first one that I joined, he was able to refer me to his CPA, which I was looking for one at the time. And so I was able to work with his CPA and, you know, get my uh, expenses organized. And I have a strategy for this year going forward. So thank you very much. I had uh, three quick questions that I wanted to pick y'all's brain, if you don't mind. Um, the very first one, as a rookie investor, I know the areas that I want to focus on. And it's like Mary was talking about, like expanding I forgot the term y'all use, but expanding suburb. Um, I'm focusing on single family homes in in, in the Houston area because uh, they they rent. There's a plethora of renters, so I'm more of a cash flow type guy. So my first question is, 
as a rookie investor, what does the free help look like? Um, because I, I understand that experienced investors like y'all would appreciate any free help, but what, what does that free help look like? Hey guys, it's just Lauren chiming in here to let you know that the Twitter gods are apparently mad at us because we did drop the space right here. Hold tight though, because we started another one and pick right back up where we left off. Hi everyone. I am sorry we had a drop. We are trying to get everyone back up. So while we're waiting, I want to go ahead and answer that first question for the free help since I've um, taken advantage of it. Um, yeah, It can be whatever you want to offer and whatever the um, investor really wants to take you up on. I mean, I had a friend who just wanted to go drive me around and look at properties with me and just get my opinion. And if you're willing to spend, you know, 20 bucks on a tank of gas and drive me around for a day um, and it's a weekend and I'm off, I'm absolutely going to take advantage of that. I had another friend come and help me paint. I had another friend come and help me take out trash. So it could be any of those types of things and it's costing you your time, but you also have to factor in the knowledge that you're getting from that person. <clears throat> While we're driving around, I'm, I'm giving my opinions. Hey, it's going to cost this much to fix this. I wouldn't buy this property. Oh, look, they're building this down the street. So the free help is, and, and, you know, I'm not going to ask anyone for free help, but if you're saying, Hey, I want to get into this, I want to do this. That's a great way to open the door. Hey, can I go look at properties with you? I'll drive, you know, or, or, Hey, can I, um, come hang with you while you're buying finishes? Can I go to the store with you? Can, you know, any of those things, I'm usually like, if you want to come and help me take out trash, absolutely. If you want to come and look at properties with me, you can walk along. You can ask questions. Two friends that I've done this with, they've become friends now, have started real estate investing for the, you know, because they started that way. So that's one of the, you know, the things that the free help, you're not doing anything earth shattering with, with the investor but you're getting their air and you're in the car with them and you're driving around. And that's a, a, a way to kind of, you know, show that you're interested, show that you're vested in it, show that you're willing to spend an afternoon, you know, painting or taking out trash or responding to a tenant or driving through neighborhoods and looking at maybe there's growth here. Maybe there's not growth here because, you know, I think that's a, a great way to expose yourself to real estate. Awesome. Thank you. I Tom. know you had two more questions. I did. The first one is a, uh, a more like a fundamental or a theory question, which is I'm more of a cash flow guy, but I also understand the other type of investment, which is appreciation. I wanted to know. So the, the first question is basically um, what is the benefit of investing for appreciation? Is it the fact that you can cash out refi and use that money elsewhere? Uh, so that that's the first question, right? What is the uh, benefit of investing for appreciation? Because I heard someone earlier in the space, I think it was you, Tom, that said, um, I'm only getting $100 per door, but I know in the long run, this, this uh, property will appreciate. Yeah, German, I'll, I'll tackle that one for you because that, that tends to be how I've done all my real estate investing. 
And so what I usually like to do for people is break it down and tie it into equities. So there's, there's three classifications of equities that a lot of people think about. And I, I tie those to real estate. So the first is when you look for high growth stocks and a lot of us, when we're doing that, we think of the Fang stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, maybe you'd throw Microsoft in there still. And what you're looking with those is you're looking at long-term, high appreciation, big capital wins, and relatively low cash flow. You may even, in some cases, be putting a little bit of cash in each month, but don't forget that tenant's paying down your mortgage. So there is, there is uh, appreciation even without lift, right? Your second type is your blue chip stocks. And so you're focused on, you're getting some appreciation, though low, and you're getting a bit of dividend income. And so that may be, depending on where you live, where I live, that's townhouses, a little further out in the suburbs. Um, you're still getting good capital appreciation but you're mo and, and some slight cash flow. The last one is pure dividend stocks, and that's, properties that are pure cash flow and the benefit of those you're getting a good cap you're getting your seven percent cash flow year in year out but you're getting relatively low capital appreciation so it really comes down to when you run your irr calculation or when you run your return calculation whatever it is you do what matches your style the most right what what fits your needs and your long-term goals? For me, early on, it was more geared towards capital appreciation. And the reason for that, German, was because the amount of capital I had available was pretty low. So if I could buy assets that would appreciate well within a few years, I would be able to then do an equity line of credit take some cash out of those projects and redeploy it into new projects. So I hope that makes sense and helps answer that question for you. Lauren, over to you. Yeah. So just to tie that down to what me and my husband are trying to do. So we have, you know, our real estate portfolio. I mean, I'm sorry, our retirement portfolio, which is, you know, in stocks and things like that. And that's kind of for the future, right? That's, you know, the stuff we're going to touch later on. What we're treating our real estate as right now is kind of the cash flow to get us between retiring early into accessing those retirement accounts later. So what we do is we're actually kind of pivoting from long-term rentals to short-term rentals because the cash flow is better. It's also more work. But if tomorrow my boss said, hey, we're shutting down the company, I probably wouldn't go get another job. I really wouldn't need to. And that's kind of the point of the cash flow for me versus, versus the appreciation. Um, Mary, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add that I think part of the reason there's always a discussion about cash flow is that, you know, if you buy something, um, even if it's in a great neighborhood and um, but the rent doesn't cover all your expenses, right? You've got a negative cash flow. Now, sometimes that does work for people depending on the market you're buying in and the appreciation you're looking at. But you just have to take that into consideration that 
you will have to carry that that negative debt until you reach a point where either the rents you know go up or enough of the mortgage has paid down or or different things and I, so i think that's why the cash flow discussion always comes out um but if you you know at a bare minimum um if you're investing long term to build wealth you don't need the cash flow in the short term you know you can have very little cash flow as long as the tenants are, you know, covering your debt service, paying down debt. Um, and I always calculate, you know, a bit of money that you would put in reserves for any kind of repairs and maintenance, things like that. So there's just a, a little additional idea um, added on to why we kind of talk about the kind of cash flow versus appreciation. Yeah, Mary, you nailed that. The properties that I've purchased, most of them when I run my modeling the first three to four years there's no cash inflow it's me putting cash into the property every year i want to say somewhere in the tune of a of a couple hundred bucks a month um but probably paying off about two grand in mortgage a month so it's net net i'm still getting uh, a decent win on the mortgage side i think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50 grand the property 40 grand the property on the mortgage and then the appreciation on those properties is probably another 20 grand each a, a year. So you're looking at it and saying, okay, I'm, I'm not getting cash flow, but between my principal pay down and my capital appreciation, I'm pulling 40 to $50,000 off each property per year in net worth growth. In German, if, if, if you're relatively cash flow rich in your daily life and you don't need the cash, to me, that, that's why I do that historically, though now I'm starting to be more like uh, Mary Tom and, and Lauren, and my new goal is to start finding cash flowing properties because if I'm going to retire, I need cash flow. And you had one more question, German, and then, and then we'll get Zach, and then we'll get uh, Invest Cash. Awesome. And, and thank you, everybody, for clarifying. And, and, and the same thing for me, I, I'm kind of like in the middle, blue chip, a little bit of appreciation, a little bit of cash flow, nice little balance. But the third question is, I have my, my first property, um, cash flows. Uh, I, I think it follows the 1% rule. I, I, I need to verify that. But but still, cash flows well, great tenants. Um, I'm curious how you guys went about and got your second and third property. And I'm talking about finance because the way I financed my first one was a uh, conventional 5% down um, loan. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to take that next step. And, and when the opportunity arises, I'm analyzing deals like Mary spoke about. And when my realtor and I find one that that meets the criteria um i i like to go ahead and and purchase it but would that be a 20 percent down loan or or i've also obviously other people's money um but i'm curious uh how y'all finance your your second third deals and any recommendations or hey have you considered this uh, for me go, going forward to obtain my second or third. And thank you again to all of you for, for doing this. This is very awesome and uh, a lot of knowledge being thrown out here. So thank you. Thank you very much.
Likewise, thank you. Those are, are three very good questions that will really benefit everyone in the audience. So appreciate you asking those. And we can each take a turn on that one because you have a number of people who have multiple properties uh, up here on the stage. So Mary, why don't you go go first because you've done quite a lot recently. So it's it's and and I actually remember your answer and uh, it's very similar to mine. So you go first and then we'll go Lauren, Tom, and and then if there's anything different in my situation, uh, I'll jump in and contribute. Okay, yeah. So um, my first two properties was with a HELOC on our personal residence. And we did, you know, traditional 20% down, you know, buying a, a rental property. They uh, didn't need much work. And, um, you know, we got they, they passed inspection, things like that. Um, we quickly realized we would run out of capital. So we decided to sell our personal residence, um, which is not something, you know, that everyone is going to want to do, but we were just very committed to kind of what we, what our goals were. And um, we had bought in a great area. Um, we had fixed up the house and it was worth way more than we ever thought, you know, we'd be able to sell it for. Um, and we actually the idea entered our head because a neighbor offered to buy it. Um, and we're like, Oh, would we sell this? And then we realized that um, our money would go much further. So we did. And then we were able to buy uh, several more properties. So, however, um, you know, the other thing a lot of people can do uh, is, you know, you can partner with someone. Um, and then also there is, um, you know, I, I, you may have heard of the Burr strategy, right? And I, I talked a little bit about a property I bought in October. Um, but basically, if you can, if you have the cash to buy a property that is um, under market value because it either needs um, decent repairs or, you know, I spoke about, you know, finding a, a house that's in probate or there's some other issue, the seller needs to sell it quickly, if you're able to do that, you can cash out refinance and leave very little money um, in the actual property. Um, so in October, I found a, a property where we bought it with cash and we only left 18000 in the deal, which is way less than the 20% that I would have needed to put down if I had just um, you know, bought it like normal. Uh, the way people get that cash, of course, I said I sold my personal residence and then everything we bought from that point on, um, we bought with cash and then and then cash out refinanced. But um, the way other people will get that is a hard money loan. Um, again, you can you can find a private money um, and or you can partner. Um, you need to be very careful with the hard money loan. It's very high interest rate. It's short term. You, you have typically it's like a year. It depends sometimes 18 months. You need to know that that property that you're buying is going to be worth more when you go to um, refinance it or cash out, refinance it down the road. So you can pay off that hard money loan. And so that's kind of um, a couple of things. Uh, and I've used, um, all those strategies. So I had my own personal money. We had some money tied up in a different property and wanted another one. So we um, used both private money and um, a partial hard money loan. And then when we cashed out, we paid back the hard money loan and the, the private money. So those are all um, kind of some options you can use. You just have to be very careful when you when you buy the property. You're not buying a 
you know, turnkey, um, going to pass inspection kind of property. Um, you're going, unless again, you, you find it off market and the person just is unloading it for less than market value. Can I, can I in a, a, a little question for Mary real quick? If, if y'all yeah, yeah. yeah, fire away. Can y'all walk me through a, a simple math burr strategy? Because I, I understand. So, for example, let's just say I'll throw easy numbers out there. Bought a single family for 100K. I, th- I invested 10K into repairs. Now it's worth, let's just say, 130, right? Um, you have the 30K in equity, but uh, you, you already invested 10 so in reality the net is like 20 so when you do the refi uh and you and you take your your money out what is the money that's being taken out the the 30k in equity and your monthly note would increase now from the 100k to 130k loan correct i just want to understand i just want to understand that it's not it, it's it's not quite that simple german so w- what what happens and this is the key with the home equity lines of credit is this is how quite a few of us have have purchased our real estate and and one of the ways we recommend other people do it what you're going to have is is the bank is going to do an appraisal and if if in your situation they've appraised it at 130,000 then they're still going to require you to have your down payment in there. And given the program that you used to fund it that allowed you to only put 5% down, I don't know if they would allow a HELOC on it. So I, I'll defer to Mary or Tom on that. But but I'll, I'll give you a bit of a more realistic scenario where you were already 20% down. So situation, $100,000 home, you had 20% down. And so you had 20,000 in, you put 10,000 more in renovation, and now it appraises, I'm gonna do simple math and say it appraises at, at 150,000. What the bank's gonna do is they're gonna appraise it, say it's worth 150,000. And so you need 20% in is 30,000, and they'll lend you 120,000. Now your original loan was only eighty thousand, so that's a forty thousand dollar increase to the loan. So they give you forty thousand in cash. You had spent ten, so net you you pulled an additional thirty thousand of cash out of that project, although that you then have to go put into a new one. So it's all based on monetizing the lift in your property over that time. Mary, Tom, if you're doing the, the, we don't have the program here in Canada. If you're doing the program where you only have 5% down to begin with, can, can you BRR that and HELOC it? You, you can do a HELOC if you're living in it. And that's what I did with my second property was I, I HELOC'd my money right back out of it because I was living in one of the units. Uh, and then I used that money for a down payment for a second property. But um, if you're not living in it and it's a straight rental, then that's a no. It's interesting down there. I know a lot of people say Canada has real estate bubbles, but everyone up here has to have at least 20% in their property. So it's a lot harder to be as bubbly. The 5% really scares me. But um, 
Lauren or Tom, did you have anything different on how to get that next property than Mary did that you want to chime in on? And I'll, and I'll pass it over to you. I'll, I'll go real quick. I, and I think this is a really good way to do it. And it has, I got this question a couple of times recently in my DMs too, where it's like, how do you get your second one? And I moved out of the first one, bought a second one, and then rented the first one out. And the reasoning for doing that is you get to keep your primary residence loan. And Clint, I don't know what the differences are um, up in the great north when it comes to the difference between like a you know, a rental property versus your primary home in terms of interest rates. But it's about, a, I don't know, half a point probably recently, but it's going to be a point, I think, probably different. Meaning if you can get a primary home loan for three and a half or or 4%, it's going to be four and a half or 5% if it's an investment property. You can also, Clint, put less down. So <laughs> if you want to, let's say you put 5% down on your first place and you can only save up 5% to buy another place. If you move, you can do that. If it's an invest, so you can move, put say 5% down, get uh, probably, a, probably right now it's like a 4% interest rate, right? If you were to stay in your house, you'd have to put 20, 25% down and pay, you know, four and a half, five percent 5% interest on it. So that is the reasoning for moving and renting your first place out. And that's what I did. And Tom's talking about doing that right now. I've actually done that a couple of times. Um, and then just to just to add just to add a little bit to the Burr conversation, and Burr stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Just FYI. And I did a Burr in 2020. And like it was, it's like a Burr house hack, short term rental. So it was a lot of little good real estate goodies all at once. But we bought a place for two eighty, put one hundred and fifty thousand dollars into it, and so that if you do that math, that means we were four hundred and thirty thousand dollars into the property. It appraised for four twenty, which I thought was pretty good, all things considered. And so we took a hundred thousand dollars back out. We actually lowered our interest rate because interest rates had gone in a a favorable direction. And then we took that $100,000 and bought another property to move into that had a 2.99% interest rate on it. And that was all we did was we put $80,000 down because we put 20% down instead of 25 or 30 if it was a if it was going to be an investment property. And then we uh, did about $20,000 worth of renovations to it. So that was kind of, that was the idea of the Burr is you kind of use the same money you used before. Um, but it does take, it takes a little bit of time to get to that. You kind of do have to save up at least a couple of times before you can kind of just keep using the same money over and over again. The only uh, thing I, 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 go Tom. The only thing I wanted to, to kind of add on that, if Burr isn't an option at this time, Look at the non-traditional stuff. Uh, look at the owner financing. Uh, tonight, I was just looking at Houston suburbs. And if you go to Texas City or you go to Rosenberg um, the, and, and you filter Zillow by owner, there are opportunities out there where people will finance you. So if you don't have the time or the money to do that, then look at what you do have. So if this person's ready to get rid of this property What kind of deal can you work out with them? And when you look at those by owners, there's a lot of times where people are just, you know, I want to get this thing off the books. I don't want to deal with tenants anymore. 
and maybe you could work out a deal that way. And I have structured deals like that over over the last um, 18 years. I realized as you guys were talking that we actually do have in Canada an ability in fee that may only be on our on our personal residence to have less than 20%. Uh, where we have a, a Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHD, and if you uh, pay certain costs, they'll provide insurance, and then the bank will let you have less than 20% down. Uh, we've yeah, never taken true. advantage of that because there's fees. Steve, are you able to go as low as 5% on that? Yeah, you can go down to 5% with uh, an insured oh. mortgage, just like you're saying. But it's, it's exactly like you're saying. It has to be your first primary resident. Uh, residents and it can't be for an investment property although i have heard there are some loopholes and ways you can kind of jump through that but uh the paper is yeah you can take five percent for your primary by an insured mortgage uh but you know like the way housing is in canada now clint especially in your area and it's happening a little more in mine as well too in the province of alberta if you're looking for an investment property, you have to have that 20% to, yeah, skip that insurance fee, but also to get, if you're looking for cash flow, you have to put more than 20% down. If you're looking for a reasonable risk to reward ratio, you got to be putting that 5% or that 20% down. Um, just, it, it won't cash flow. The, the prices are so perfect and at such a level that you need to have a good amount of money down. Uh, Canadians love real estate and they bump the prices up to levels that are in many ways ridiculous that we're seeing here. So, uh, yeah, but you're right though. And you can also pull out against your RSP as well too. That's the equivalent of the 401k. Uh, so you can take an interest-free loan against your savings uh, and you have to pay it back within a certain amount of time frame as well too. Uh, you can pull it out tax-free, no implications there. I need to change my answer to young Canadians because I always forget about uh, about that five percent rule because we we've never taken advantage of it. So I need to need to rethink that. The one other benefit we tend to get up here is I, I think we have much lower interest rates. It seems whenever I talk to you guys down there. So if we go fixed rate, we're sitting at about two two seven right now. Uh, it was two four five uh, a month ago or two months ago, and if we go variable. We're sitting at around one six, which which is is fun. I think I had one at one four for most of last year, so we get pretty low interest rates. Um, what I'd love love to do is go to the next question, if that's all right. We have we have five people with questions, and I know we were intending to be out by about seven thirty. So I'm thinking if we can get through these five people in the next ten to fifteen minutes, then we'll jump off. We had in order, so you guys don't need your hands up. We're tracking you. We had Zach, then we have Investcast, uh, then we have Cade, and then we have Lawrence. So um, that was Zach first. Why don't you go with your question? Sure. Thanks, Clint. Um, right. So I'm I'm just kind of getting started. I don't have any properties yet, but I'm I'm going pretty. Um, head first into it right now. I've, I've picked my market. I've narrowed down to a couple of zip codes within that, the area. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking to be basically out of state investing at this point due to, 
um, kind of prices in my area and, and when I think I'd be able to jump into that. Um, but I'm, I'm working on building my team, right? So I'm focused on trying to learn about property managers in the area and focusing on um, picking a solid property manager. I met with a couple of folks who I thought were investors. Turns out they're, they're investors and agents uh, kind of all in one. And they gave me the impression or actually explicitly told me that uh, PMs won't sit down with me unless I have a property under contract. And so my question is, is, has that been your experience? Have you found that good PMs won't talk to you unless you already have a property under contract or, or should a good PM be willing to just chat about their business with you regardless of whether you have a property in mind? The, I, I think if they're good at what they do and they're a good property manager, then they'll have a conversation with you, right? Because if you're serious about buying dirt buying a home, then they're going to want to secure that business. And could you imagine if they wouldn't even sit down with you for a coffee in advance of buying the house, what are they going to be like when you buy the house? So that would, that to me would be an indicator of whether I would want to work with them or not. Lauren, Mary, Tom, I don't, do any of you guys use property managers or am I, am I the only one that uh, doesn't like to go see my houses just like to get paid <laughs> um i i had no problems talking to a property management company multiple ones um i don't use them actually but i just called around and just said hi i'm an investor i you know have these questions um i'm, I'm looking possibly for property management um and they i i talked to several of them um and in fact i you know, they're kind of, they know houses that might be coming up on the market as well. So they're a good source to, to try to find deals from. So I don't know if it's my area specifically, but um, I talked to at least six to seven different companies. Um, and I, I didn't have any problems talking with them. Good to know. So the yeah. realtors who make money when you buy a place are telling you you can't talk to property managers until you buy a place. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of uh, <laughs> what I got off the call was exactly how I was coming out of it thinking. And especially the market that I'm looking at, from what I understand, PMs are required to have their license to sell anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a red flag. I just wanted to kind of throw it out there and see what you all thought. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I, I would call around. I haven't had any issues with people talking to me. I mean, some of the things it's like, if you're going to look at a property, sometimes it's already being property managed. And so they theoretically, that company should want to keep managing it and should at least talk to you. What are the current rents? What are the, what is the maintenance like? You know, just things like that. Just very typical questions. So that they, they should definitely talk to you. Awesome. Thanks folks. Awesome. Thanks Zach. And uh, looking forward to you getting that first property under control and getting that PM booked. InvestCast, you've had your hand up for a fair amount of time. Fire away. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. I uh, appreciate uh, this is a great space, by the way, and uh, thank you all for your time and inputs. Uh, my question is, uh, so I'm actually, you know, uh, looking for a real estate investment, uh, buying into REITs, but I want to ask you guys, like, what do you guys think of rising interest rate uh, scenario, which is currently going on in U.S.? Uh, with inflation going up and as well as uh, uh, Fed's raising interest rates, uh, 
how do you see the real estate uh, um, dividends or real, real rates income will probably play into this and do you think this is a good investment uh, i'm particularly looking at um, uh, one stock that i really like uh, pulte group uh, which is you know they i analyze that stock from a funda- fundamental standpoint they have a really low debt but they made a good lot of money when you know uh, the economy was booming and all that but i i just want to get your thoughts on uh, when the interest rates are rising in future how, how does this uh, uh, rates will come into play and uh, would that be a good uh, uh, um, uh, play i should consider thank you yeah it's a, it's a great question the i remember in my role uh, we, we didn't do intros but as a cfo for a real estate development company um, in the past, I used to at least annually grab about eight public real estate companies and then compare compare our financial performance on a metric basis against them. And, and Polte uh, Homes was a was a great company that we would always look at in that list. But uh, personally, I think what you want to do is really look at the financials and understand how rising interest rate environment will impact them. Right, how much they're going to have on there. The 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 things that you're going to want to look at are what what is their fixed rate debt as a percentage of their portfolio. What's their variable rate debt as a percentage of the portfolio? Obviously, you know that's probably going to be one minus the other number. Um, and then what is what's their maturity ladder? So if they have a lot of ten year debt and they don't have much maturing over the next four to five years, because we we have to remember that interest rates will cycle. Right. Generally, what happens is interest rates are raised and then we have a recession. And, and I've shared on the um, conversation before that that recession can come historically anywhere from 11 months to 84 months after the first interest rate hike. And so that's anywhere from a year to seven years. Right. So. We don't know when that will happen, but generally when the recession does happen, the, the answer tends to be a reduction in uh, interest rates. So my only point be there being you'll see them cycle. Interest rates on average aren't increasing. On average, aren't very good for real estate development companies. The main question that you have to ask yourself and and would appreciate even uh, one of the rest of the crew weighing in on is what is that going to do to capitalization rates? So for those who are involved in the read or, or buying real estate in that way, uh, Monopoly Brothers, you guys might do this with some wholesaling. Uh, like you're looking at what's the cap rate to buy that property. And if in your area, the cap rate is let's say 6%, what will that cap rate be when interest rates rise? And for those who are listening, capitalization rate is a way that we buy real estate where we say, what's the net operating income from that property? And what would I be willing to pay for that property to generate a specific return? You're almost taking the real estate and turning it into a bond. So you're saying, I want 6% on that real estate bond so I'm, I'm going to take the NOI and I'm going to divide it by 6%, the net operating income. And so what, what may happen in a rising interest rate environment 
is people will no longer accept 6% on their money. They'll want 8%. And if cap rates go from 6% to 8%, it's law of small numbers, right? Like that seems like a small number to you, but it's not the fact that it went from six, that it's 8%, six to eight is a, is a two jump, but it's a two jump on six. So that's a 30% increase in the capitalization rate. That's massive because when you divide the NOI by that number, that's what happens to the value of your property. In that situation, the value of your property would drop 30%. And so depending on what area the REIT is in, I know this is a very long answer, but this is where I spend a lot of my, my time and uh, <laughs> sorry. And, and we own a, a piece of a, of a fairly substantial REIT down in Seattle. It's a Canadian REIT that invests into Seattle uh, and has over a billion dollars in assets now. And, and we're a, a pretty majority owner in the management company. The, so we talk about this a lot. The, depending on where you are, you may expect cap rates to rise or not. And one of the reasons is there's so much cash in the system, in the economy, which is largely why we're seeing inflation, why we're seeing uh, stocks do crazy runs over long periods of time, that even with higher interest rates, you may not see people wanting uh, to raise the cap rate because they have nowhere to put their money. And so they want to keep it in the real estate. So like if I'm looking at it, I'm looking at your coastal cities like Seattle um, and, and certain areas in California. And I'm saying those cap rates, I don't expect to change. Other areas that have historically had wider swings in the up and ups and downs of the market, I could see some challenge to the cap rate and therefore the values. I personally, you know, it's also going to come down to how aggressive are they on with the interest rates if if the economy starts to shudder when they raise them too fast, right? They raise them once and they they said six more times in the next year. That sounds absolutely bonkers to me. And and I'd be willing to put a pretty substantial over under that that does not happen. Um, so that was a very long answer. Lauren, Tom, Mary, Steve, uh, any input on that one? Yeah, no, I just I just want to emphasize like, what you just shared, Clint, was an absolute gem. I w- it is, it exposes the shortcoming of Twitter spaces. It would be awesome to see it visually on a whiteboard and see you kind of draw that out and see the numbers a little better um, because what you explained is worth money. Uh, It's an example of the knowledge that you have with real estate and how interest rates play into that, change it and adjust the cap rates and how that impacts the... uh, the prices that are asked and demanded for, for real estate going forward. I love your take on interest rates and where they're going. You're right. They went up once they have, they've postured and said they're going to do six more. I think a lot of what they do with their communication is to posture and show and have the appearance that they can, can control the currency and that they can control and bring in inflation. And a lot of it has to do, they, they, I think they have less control than what they want us to believe that they really do. And I, I agree with you. I don't think they're going to be able to do it seven times. They're going to do some more times. They're probably going to come in at about four or five more times. They might do a heavy 50 uh, basis point this next one to kind of show 
and maybe assert some strength, <laughs> but even 50 basis points isn't really that much. Uh, but I, a lot of what they say in my mind is them trying to show people and communicate to people that they have control over the situation when I don't think they have as much control as they want us to believe that they really do. So going forward, I think they're more subject to the market and the inflation and the massive money printing that they've been doing for the last 22 months, 24 months. And so, but just anyways, I just wanted to highlight, I love your points about your, what you were just sharing and just the value that you brought to the spaces. It was tremendous. And I wish it was more visual is my only regret. Thanks, Steve. And, and my team would echo any time that there's an opportunity to break out the dry erase pens and get on the whiteboard. Uh, I'm doing it. So when video comes here, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of whiteboarding. So hopefully that uh, answered your question in Vestcast. Mary, Tom, anything additional you want to throw on that one or, or Lauren, or do we want to go to Cade's question? And then we have Lawrence and then Monopoly Brothers. Lawrence might've dropped down. So we would go straight to Monopoly Brothers uh, for the last two. Okay. Yep. I didn't have a question. I was going to just speak on the last thing, but it's all good. We're all good. Okay. okay yeah. Well, if that's the case, then dive in. Yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Really, really quick, just cause um, I thought it was a really good question um, about the reads. One thing to kind of also kind of consider is that in raising rights, raising, rising rates environments, uh, REITs actually tend to uh, outperform. I believe the S&P 500, I was reading this thing from store capital um, before the CEO left. And he was kind of talking about that and, the reason being is because, remember, REITs, obviously, is real estate, but it is a business. So things such as like the um, you know, FFO, NOI, things like that increase because it has a higher occupancy rate, is stronger rent growth in rising rate environments. So therefore, they can issue out more dividends. So, um, you know, kind of keep that in the head. Like, as crazy as it sounds, REITs do actually outperform S&P 500 during rising rate, rising rate environments. And also just to throw in there as well and I let it go. But um, I was thinking about this because I have Vici is one of like my big ones that I'm really into right now as far as REITs is concerned. And, um, you know, when they are buying their, these, um, you know, their casino business, so to speak, and they're buying the actual building of it in the land, their rates are not the ones we're getting, right? <laughs> so they're, they have the volume and the kind of numbers they're getting you know we think when you say rising rates right we're thinking about rates that we may get oh it's four and a half percent right now right bank of america has this right now where they're not getting those rates right vgo store capital right any of these things are getting rates that are um can be more advantageous than ours so like that's another thing got to add on to it so they're getting better interest rates than like the average consumer um, because it REITs are actually a business as well as real estate, but a business as well is higher oxygen growth. It's, uh, they're able to raise the rents and it makes NOI higher, right? Going back to coach said about the uh, cap rate. So now it's stronger business because the people are in there longer to issue out more dividends. So, uh, they actually really perform very, very well, very, very well in these markets. But just want to throw that in there, uh, as I just kind of keep listening yeah, the, I would say in a in a in an inflationary environment, they outperform almost every asset class. In the shorter term, your rents the better. So self storage is like number one. Then you have uh, short term rentals. Then the longer your rental term, the worse it is because you have tenants and you don't get to take advantage. 
Uh, I didn't know that they outperformed in a rising interest rate environment, which is like what you're doing to shut off the inflation. So as long as the inflation is still going, you're, you're going to be winning. But usually what happens is the rising interest rates shut off the inflation and that's where you get into trouble with the real estate if the cap rates move. But during that actual inflationary period, real estate is one of the, well, yeah, one of the best asset classes to be in, which is, is why we've all had such significant wins over the last three years. Cade, uh, you had a question. Yeah, guys, thanks for all the information you guys are sharing. It's uh, really helpful, especially for us new investors and stuff getting into real estate. But I'll keep this quick. I know you guys are kind of stressed for time. But real quick, I'm quick background. I'm going to be graduating college here in May, and so we'll be moving actually uh, south of Houston. So I know there's some other people um, in the Texas area here too, but I'll be moving south of Houston, and I'm looking into getting into house hacking. So real kind of quick if there's any quick points you guys have when looking into a house hacking deal as far as things to look for or maybe specific do's and don'ts uh when looking at a property for a potential house hack deal that might differ you know from an ordinary um real estate purchase that you're looking at just some quick rundown not any in-depth answers just kind of want to hear uh, your guys experience the uh i'll defer to lauren she's our queen of house hacking uh and very good at this one so lauren you want to tackle this one Sure. So when you ask people about house hacking, a lot of times you will think automatically about, say, a duplex, right? And there's this idea that, you know, one side should pay for the whole thing. And I think currently, at least in my area in Florida, that's probably not the case. You know, it's okay to house hack and still pay a little bit is what I'm saying. It's probably not good. It's not going to be as much as if you were renting that space yourself. It's not going to be as much as if you were paying a mortgage on something. Um, but also don't be afraid to get creative. You know, duplexes, triplexes, quads, those are fantastic. That's where you can still get a conventional loan, right? Especially for a primary good rate, things like that. Um, but don't be afraid to, you know, look for look for stuff with mother-in-law suites. Look for, um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have basements or whatever. You can have like a basement apartment or an above garage apartment or, you know, just there's a lot of different ways to be creative. Uh, you could straight up have roommates if you can't find um, a, a small multifamily, too. So just be creative with it. You really need to be able to pick yourself living there, but you get to pick your neighbors because you get to pick your tenants. So that's pretty cool. So those are kind of just some high level off the cuff thoughts that I have. Clint, that was all I really had. I mean, if anyone else wants to weigh in or you can go on to the next oh, question. Oh, sorry, Kate. Sorry, that. Yeah, no, no, you're all good. It's all good. And <laughs> I think that's the first time I've heard you speak, brother. That's great after... Uh, being in uh, the uh, Discord channel with you for like six months now. <laughs> yeah, same too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I need to get more involved on the space side of things. I'm trying. Well, I lo I love what you're doing in on Twitter and the content you're providing while you're still in college. Like, sky's the limit for you, brother. So I I love that. Monopoly brothers, did you have something a question or a share that you wanted to do before we wrap the space up? As you guys are so polite. I've been in you guys like this so many times. You guys are so awesome. Uh, nothing other than Cade. Uh, I'm ho house hacking. Uh, I'll tell you one small thing. I wish I'd have had, I have a duplex. I wish I'd had two bed, two bath. I have, I mean, two bed, one bath. I have one, one. And um, for appraisal purposes, and I'm going to take some money out of this thing. I wish I could go back in time and got in my side when it comes to duplex, two, one, two, one versus a, Two one one one. So if I could go back, I would have for sure looked for a two bedroom on both, not just one. Uh, 
definitely a loss on my end. <laughs> but hey, you guys are awesome. I'm not here to try to hog or jump in. I'm just super stoked to hear people talk about real estate and just some really good people in here. And Tom kind of invites me here and there. So just great to finally hear from you guys. Thanks for joining us. And in, in, we do it uh, every Wednesday. Sometimes the topics are different. Quite often it's real estate, but it's always about how to, how to grow our wealth and, and how to make money and reach that financial independence that Tom uh, has, that Lauren's almost at. Mary, you're probably not far off. So uh, that's where we're all trying to get to. And, and do we want to, uh, Lauren, Steve, Mary, Tom, just kind of final parting words before we wrap up the space tonight? I'll go ahead and go if that's okay. My name is Tom. I started this account a year ago. I started buying real estate 18 years ago. Um, it took me 17 years to build up enough confidence indoors to leave my nine to five. I left my nine to five this year and without this squad and without this room, I probably would still be working. I'd be working right now, actually. So I get a lot of value out of this. So if you guys aren't already following us, please click follow and, and join our space. Ask us questions. We're here for this. We want you guys to grow, and we're growing every step of the way along with you. Um, and I just want to say I appreciate everyone that's on the board. I appreciate everyone that's in the room with us right now because um, I wouldn't be where I am right now a year after signing up for this Twitter account without the people in this room. I don't want to be the guy that, that follows you there, Tom. That was awesome. I love that thought that uh, we're all growing together, right? Like we're, we're helping each other. We're growing and we're all trying to achieve that financial independence uh, through various ways. A lot of what we focus on here on Wealth Wednesdays with real estate is the tried and true asset that a lot of us have built and established wealth with. And I just want to echo a lot of what you just said. It was awesome. Join us every Wednesday night. We're here 7 p.m. Eastern. Sorry, <laughs> 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm, I'm 7 p.m. Mountain time here, so I always got to try and convert it and flip it back. But uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, we're here. We talk about wealth. We talk about the strategies that we've used and delivered, uh, wealth building strategies that work. And we're happy to work with you guys, hear from you, explore ideas, answer questions. Um, and also like Tom was saying, learn from you as well. That's part of what our accounts are about as well too. We want to help, but we also want to learn too. And we were interested in what you guys have to share the questions, the opportunities so that we can all achieve financial independence together. So thanks for being with us tonight, guys. I appreciate it. Basically real estate can be very forgiving. So if anyone is kind of holding back because they're they're not sure where to buy, what to buy, when to buy, um, it's about kind of ed educating yourself on kind of how to run the numbers, how you're going to buy the property. And there comes a point that you have to choose and, you know, make a decision and buy something. Um, it, it may not be perfect, but as time passes, you're able to build up your wealth with it um, and it can be forgiving. So you could buy the wrong property or it may not be as great of a deal as you thought, but you're going to learn a lot in that process. Um, and it, and the most important thing is it's going to give you the confidence to keep going and to find other deals and maybe expand into a different market or, or go in a different direction. So um, you really have to kind of put yourself through doing it in order to 
um, to gain that confidence and, and to be able to then find the really good deals um, and to kind of hit, hit the ball out of the park. Right. So um, I, I think a lot of times we hold back because we're kind of scared. I think analysis paralysis is more like fear than anything else. And there just has to come a point when, when you kind of go for it and then kind of keep learning because I'm sure all of us are still learning as we uh, get better, we buy more, as our wealth builds, you get into other areas of the market and um, and you have to keep connecting with others. You have to keep networking and educating yourself. It, it doesn't stop with your first deal. So, but yeah, thank you guys for, for letting me into your space and kind of talking about real estate and, and sharing tonight and, um, and good luck everyone with their, their first or next deals.